Well, we're going to be looking at Colossians chapter 3, verses 18, uh, through chapter 4, verse 1 this morning. So we're going to cross the chapter boundary. Um, you can click, tap, swipe, turn in your Bibles if you use one of those old-fashioned kinds. Um, any way you want to get there, I'd like to, to just sit there, camp out there with me for a minute. And as we read this passage, and then as I preach through this passage, check what I'm saying against God's Word. That is the standard, not a man. So please do that with me. And let me read. Wives, <clears throat> wives submit to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord <clears throat> you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. I once heard of a preacher, an interim pastor, who gave impassioned sermons every Sunday. The congregation was excited by his ability and hopeful that he would eventually not just be their interim pastor, but their full-time regular pastor. They had him on an extended trial of several months, which is a bit unusual. In this case, though, perhaps it was a bit fortuitous. It gave them weeks and weeks to assess the man's competency and ability to do the job. But eventually it became clear that things were falling apart. And the man's wife confessed one morning to another woman in the church that every Sunday she sat in the front pews and prayed that her husband's heart would be convicted by his own words because behind the closed doors of the home, his life didn't look anything like the message he preached. In fact, in recent years, perhaps because of the explosion of social media, we've been bombarded with preachers and other religious leaders whose lives at home have been in stark contrast to the messages they proffered. But while it's certainly easy to point the, figure, or point the finger at public figures, and, and they certainly rightly deserve the scrutiny, millions, probably billions of people, lead very different lives behind closed doors than they do in public. And there can be many reasons for that. I mean, all of us, for example, need to keep up certain social expectations, and, and those aren't always bad. Most people understand that you don't let one rip in the Tupperware section at Target even though you're perfectly free to do that on the couch at home. Those social expectations can bleed into our morality, though, not just our sense of decorum, our sense of right and wrong. And so a blatantly racist person might still ask, how may I help you today, sir, to someone of a different ethnicity, just because she knows it's expected, but not because she really feels like being polite. It's the social convention. Similarly, another person doesn't pull up porn in the middle of an open workspace at 10 a.m. on a Monday, but he has no qualms about doing it at 10 p.m. on a Tuesday at home. Last week, we looked at Colossians 3, verses 1 through 17, and we noted that we have a heavenly calling, and that heavenly living begins with worldly dying. And Paul wrote at the beginning of that section, the top of chapter 3, if you're there, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Then Paul wrote about what this heavenly living and worldly dying look like, particularly with regard to our own wicked hearts and our relationships within the church body. The verses that we're looking at this morning, 3.18 through 4.1, are an extension of this idea that we have a heavenly calling, but it's now applying it to the home itself. It's as if 3, 1 through 4 are the main point, and, and 5 through 17 are the first sub-point, 
Our passage this morning is the second subpoint, and the passage that we'll look at next week is sort of subpoint three. So we'll we'll get to that. And the main idea of this passage this morning is that if we belong to a, a heavenly home, then we must cultivate gospel homes. If we belong to a heavenly home, we must cultivate gospel homes. And the passage breaks up into a pretty obvious three sections. Spouses, sires and scions, and slaves and slave masters. Spouses, sires and scions, and slaves and slave masters. I was reminded by someone this week that I hadn't used alliteration for a while, so I decided to to lean into it this morning. Before we, we dig into the specifics too much, we should probably say something, a little bit at least, about what we're looking at. There are three passages, at least, that are similar to this in the New Testament. This one, a, a similar one in Ephesians chapter 4, and then bleeding into chapter 5, and then one in 1 Peter 2, and, and bleeding into chapter 3. And it might seem strange that three different passages by two different authors include lists of instructions for the Christian home with such a similar pattern. But that's because Paul and, and Peter were borrowing a little bit from their culture. See, Greek and Roman philosophy was often concerned with how a household ought to be ethically managed as the foundation of a good society. Jewish and Christian thinking similarly viewed the home as centrally important for human flourishing. But they brought about a unique biblical ethics to bear out on the situation. The concern for the family, the home, was a commonality for Christians and the surrounding culture. But they had a distinctive take on those relationships. Those ethical guidelines needed to be filtered through the gospel and through the larger story of Scripture. So when we see this list in Colossians, we have, in a way, Paul trying to help these local Christians in the city of Colossae rethink their expectations and values that they learned from their culture and upbringing in light of their connection to Jesus. In verse 3, Paul had written, For you have died, and your life is hidden with God in Christ. So as Christians, our old way of life is dead. It died with Jesus on the cross, and a new life was granted to us in Jesus' resurrection. Because Jesus paid for our sins, we ought to live new and, and different lives, and the old habits and customs of the old nature and the old world must pass away. Now, the cultural thinkers of the first century were interested in the right management and ordering of a home. And these three divisions that we have here were not uncommon. Not unlike today, a household generally included a husband and a wife and their children. Of course, polygamy was more common in the ancient world, but that was not a Christian option. The surprising addition to the home The idea of the home here is the presence of slaves. We'll talk about that when we we get to that portion of the passage, but I'll just point out that in the ancient world, slaves were considered a part of the household. They weren't just property, as was so often the case in the American system. Throughout this particular guide to a gospel home, we see the husband, the father, the male figure is in focus in every relationship. The Bible does not teach a a moral difference between human beings. It does not teach a value difference between human beings. So husbands are not more valuable than wives. Fathers are not more valuable than children. And slave owners are not more valuable than slaves. But it does recognize an idea of headship in which the family is incorporated into its head, the the husband-father. He stands for the family, and he represents the family, and the relationships are ordered under him. They aren't valued under him, but they're ordered under him. We, we shouldn't think of this as, a, or as an organizational chart of some Fortune 500 company. That's not the idea here. Instead, the members of the home are part of one another, inseparable from one another, but organized in such a way that the buck stops with the husband, and his loving example is a blessing to all, and his failure is a curse to all. It's in this way that the Bible can speak of all human beings as being caught up in the first man, Adam. His failure in the Garden of Eden didn't just impact him, but as our representative, his failures had a deleterious impact 
on every one of us. Now, how this biblical principle is worked out changes from culture to culture. The Bible gives us principles to work out more than rules to strictly obey, and, and we'll see that as we go. It's also important that the Christians could champion the household as similarly foundational to society. So they agreed with the Romans and Greeks that the family is sort of the foundational unit of culture. And while the Christians had some things to say about how Christians ought to relate to the government, and the scriptures teach us that rulers ought to be just, the Bible is fairly silent on exactly how a government should be set up, or how its various administrative divisions should be layered, or what powers it should have. But it speaks in great detail and clarity about the inner workings of the home. Christianity aims to change the world, but it does so organically. It does so bottom-up, starting with the individual heart that has repented and trusted in Jesus. And those hearts are then bound together into new communities called churches, even while those hearts work out the transformation of the most intimate bonds of human existence, the ones in its own home. So let's turn our attention to the gospel home as this passage has it laid out. And we'll turn our attention to the spouses, husbands and wives, wives and husbands. We have two short sentences that are fairly easy to understand at first glance, but they hide a lot of valuable gems to unpack, and they also deal with a lot of misconceptions and misunderstandings. So let's take a look. Paul writes, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting, to, fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Paul begins with wives and instructs them to submit to their husbands. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, let's address what he doesn't mean. He doesn't mean obey. Wives are not told to obey their husbands. Children are to obey their parents. Slaves are to obey their masters. But wives are not told to obey their husbands. That's significant. That's a significant difference. The Bible sees husbands and wives on the same basic plane. And, and on that plane, a strict obedience to one another is an inappropriate category. <clears throat> so what does it mean to submit? Well, the word could be translated here, submit yourselves, or maybe let yourself be submissive. I know that doesn't sound a lot better in English. And none of the English translations really capture the sense of the original here, which may be part of the reason why we have such a hard time with passages like this. We think they're either saying more or less than what the passage intends. Now, make no mistake, though. The emphasis here is on voluntary submission. The wife is not made to submit. And she's not submitting out of fear. She's not submitting out of weakness. She's not submitting out of a response to her husband's demands. She is choosing to submit. Now, there are faithful Christians who will debate the significance here. Uh, perhaps that Paul is saying women should submit because that's God's place for them. On the other hand, perhaps Paul is saying they should submit because the Roman cultural expectation was that men were the heads of households and Christians were not interested in overthrowing an otherwise neutral cultural form. In other words, maybe some people would say, when in Rome, do as the Romans do, as long as it's not immoral or wicked. But my guess is that neither of those explanations is particularly satisfying to modern ears. Even if we adopt the cultural approach, we have to admit then that there's nothing fundamentally immoral about the idea of a man being the head of the household. So even if you say, well, that's just cultural, that was just for them. Well, the Bible doesn't teach immorality. It doesn't teach us to sin. And so even if we conceded that, then we'd have to say there was nothing wrong about the Roman patriarchy. And I don't think most of us are very comfortable with that. On one hand, I think the reality is um, 
that there is truth in both elements, and, and we have to allow our thinking to sort of be reshaped and reformed by God's word. On one hand, the Roman ideal of a household was not entirely perverted. It had some values that overlapped with Christian values, just as Scripture teaches us values that overlap with our contemporary culture today. There are things in our current culture we can say are good, or at least neutral, even while there are some things we go, yeah, that's not in line with God's Word. And the same could be said of the first century. The same could be said about the Roman ideal home. And Christian wives submitting to their husbands could show their neighbors that Christianity was good for society. If Romans had an idea of male headship, however skewed and immoral it was compared to the biblical picture of it, there was that commonality, that common thread, that by being distinctively Christian, these wives could demonstrate that the Christian home was better than the Roman ideal. When Aristotle wrote about the family, he described the husband as ruling over his wife. But the Bible doesn't allow for that kind of relationship. The New Testament suggests, rather than an obligation for husbands to actively rule over their wives, instead, it urges wives to actively and voluntarily submit. So, at that point, there's a departure from what the culture might have expected, and it allows the good news of Jesus to be lived out in a relationship. You could say that there's a, a missional element to all of this, that, that Christian marriage ought to surpass all the best alternatives that the culture has to offer. On the other hand, you can only have this overlap if there is a connection with God's ordained pattern for human flourishing. There's a reason the Bible elsewhere speaks of the husband as the head of his wife. There's a real sense that in the economy of God, the husband will be held to account for the care and the protection of his home. And that includes his wife. The flip side of that is there's a sense in God's economy in which the wife is to voluntarily place herself under the husband's care and protection. That's why Paul says, as fitting in the Lord. It's fitting for Christians who are in Christ to have a new way of being in relationship with each other. You see, the wife is not to submit herself to her husband in precisely the same way a Roman philosopher would have thought. She is to do it in a distinctly Christian way. And in doing that, she's actually following the example of Jesus. Consider Jesus whom we know to be Lord of Lord and King of Kings, and whom we confess to be true God of true God. This Jesus, using the same verb, was said to have submitted to his parents, and later, as the exalted Son of God, said to submit to the Father. Even though in Jesus' humanity, he was equal to his parents, and in his deity, he was superior to them, he submitted to them. Even though the Son in His deity is equal to the Father, He submits to the Father. There's no sense of inferiority and superiority in the husband-wife relationship. They are equal. But there's an ordering of authority. It's an idea that's a little foreign to 21st century Western culture. And so our, our danger is, our temptation is to read our cultural ideas into these words, and we can't let that happen. We have to let the Bible speak for what these words mean. And to be clear, submission is not obedience. Every human being, and, and especially Christians, whether married or single, men or women, have their first allegiance to God to Jesus. A wife must be obedient to God, even in defiance of her own husband, if necessary. 
I've sometimes seen people try to draw organizational charts for human civilization where God or Jesus is on top and the husband is under that and the wife under that and the children under that and, and so forth and so on. And, and I don't think those attempts are very helpful. I don't, I don't know that you could draw any chart like that because the reality is, is that all human beings exist in multiple contexts of authority and submission. All of us. And those ebb and flow based on the nature of the relationship. And, and, and all of us are, in one sense, directly under God. And so I don't think those charts are, are helpful. I think we have to look at each relationship in context. Now, before we can dig on what that looks like here, we do need to turn our attention to the role of husbands. So we have this idea of husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So against the Aristotelian idea of husbands ruling their wives, Paul champions love as the activity that should consume the husband's attention. Love in this context is the Christian virtue of laying down one's priorities and one's rights for the sake of another human being, or God as the case might be. Now, it is fair to say that passages like this one have been used by those in power to abuse those who are weaker than them those with less power than them. Countless cases of domestic abuse have taken place in the world, partially justified by passages in the Bible like this one. But what we must understand is that those abuses come from an abuse of this text. Because any abuse is not a reflection of love. It's incompatible. If you physically abuse your wife, if you sexually abuse your wife, if you emotionally abuse your wife, if you psychologically abuse your wife, which includes manipulation, you are not loving your wife. You are in violation of Christian ethics. You are in sin, and you need to repent. Wives... You have no obligation to accept abuse as normative, okay, right, or appropriate. Abuse is a sin. Your husband's Christian obligation to you is love and not abuse. Christians need to be the first ones, not the last ones, the first ones to call out the hypocrisy of those who twist the scriptures for their own evil. Just because someone says some of the right things, like they believe the whole Bible and they take the whole Bible seriously, doesn't mean they get a pass when their behavior fails to fall in line with the demands of scripture. They need to be called to account. Husbands. Sacrifice your own priorities, your own desires, your own rights for the good and the blessing of your wives. Of course, the greatest good for a wife or for anyone is their spiritual good, by which I mean the things that encourage them to grow closer to Jesus Christ if they are already Christians and to learn more about Jesus Christ if they are not Christians. Of course, husbands, you will, I hope, be willing to lay down your rights and your desires and your priorities for the sake of making your wife smile. You should do that. You should serve them. You should honor them. You should care for them. But the greatest acts of love will be those that serve them with Jesus. That means men need to live out a model of Christian holiness, being an example to their entire families. It means husbands taking responsibility to ensure their families are in good churches, hearing the word of God, praying together. The husbands don't ever force these things. That wouldn't be love. But he strongly encourages these things by his example, by his actions, and by his words. So, husbands, who's the first to prayer in your home? Who's the first to meditate on Scripture in your home? Do you, husbands, model submission by submitting yourselves to Jesus and to your church and to your government? 
Well, there's a negative side to this command also, that they are not to be harsh with them, with their wives. On the surface, that's also a great response to abuse. Abuse absolutely falls under the rubric of harshness, and, and any abuser needs to repent. But the word here is probably deeper than harsh. We might translate it, do not become embittered against them. While the external sense of harshness is true, there's also an internal sense, there's an internal demand here. The husband's spirit toward his wife should be marked with gentleness. It's easy in any relationship to grow bitter, to allow vitriol to to seep into our hearts and even disgust and animosity. And when these things happen, it naturally overflows into harshness. And that's absolutely unfitting of a Christian relationship. But Christ followers also cannot pat themselves on the back merely for controlling their actions. If their hearts are still at odds with those actions. Husbands, if you're feeling bitterness towards your wife, it is good that you check your heart before you act. But it's still wicked that your heart is in that place. Instead, you must put to death that sin in your heart. As we discussed last week in the earlier part of chapter 3, kill that enmity by the Spirit. Lay it aside and put on Christ. Let your heart be changed and your actions will follow. Well, with that, maybe we can circle back to the wives and note that their voluntary submission then is more of a heart attitude that may well overflow in certain actions, just like loving and not being embittered are husband attitudes that will necessarily have actionable consequences. The wife should not allow herself to be ruled, but she is to voluntarily follow her husband's leading insofar as it reflects a righteous effort to lead his family and relationships. She's not to be subservient. That would be the wrong idea. I had a history professor in seminary who was Dutch Reformed. It's a branch of Christianity that is a little bit like Presbyterianism. It practices paedo-baptism or, or infant baptism. And he told us the story of him wooing his wife, who was a credo-baptist that she believes stronger in, strongly in believers' baptism, that the proper way to baptize somebody is after they become a believer in Jesus Christ. We'd, a gateway would agree with that. That's, that's biblical. That's what we see. She was right. He was wrong. And he told us um, how he wooed her. And as I recall the story, they were writing letters back and forth, and, and she was likewise smitten with him. But they did have this significant theological difference. One's view of baptism, after all, will likely mark what kinds of churches you can be a part of. And she wrote him a long letter explaining to him the deficiencies of his position and, his, and her conviction that he was decidedly wrong. But, she comforted him, if she married him, she would follow his guidance and let him answer to Jesus for it on Judgment Day. I love that story uh, because it demonstrated both that the wife was a strong, intelligent, reasoned, and in no way subservient woman who was willing to push back hard against her husband-to-be. And yet she was willing to voluntarily submit to him in leading a family. I suspect that her model would be scandalous to the liberals of our time who want her to chart her own course and be rid of any inkling of being under any sort of authority, especially a masculine one. But I also suspect her model would be scandalous to many conservatives who think that a woman ought to be silent and stay in her place and fall in line. As is often the case, the Christian ethic challenges our culture from all sides. And it's not easily assimilated into our culture's boxes. And sometimes that means it takes fires, you know, it takes live fire from all sides. But such is the price of truth. Now, many who are listening to this are, are probably single. And this passage doesn't speak about singleness, but it's important to say at least a little bit about that here. What do we make of that? What do you make of being single? Well, if you're single, you are your own household, most likely, especially if you're an adult. But you are no less under Christ than a married individual. 
you are freed from the need to submit yourself to a husband and you are freed from the need to set aside your own priorities for your wife. And that frees you in many ways to be more fervent and more focused in your service of Jesus. So in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul counsels that singles are free to concern themselves solely with pleasing the Lord, while married people must also be concerned with pleasing their spouses. So there are certain advantages to singleness that you can take hold of. In our culture, singleness is often viewed as freedom, especially when we're young, but not in a good way. It's a freedom to live as we please, to do what we like and not be chained down. But Christian singleness needs to be reframed as much as Christian marriage. Rather than a freedom to serve ourselves and enjoy the pleasures of life, it should be viewed as a freedom to serve God more and better. For those who are young and single, this is a message that doesn't often sink in very easily. But take it from a guy who's turned 40 and then some. I, I wasted much of my time as a single man that could have been put to better use for the kingdom in service of Jesus for things that don't seem particularly important now. Dating and looking for relationships, for example, can be time-killing and, and soul-killing. And once you're married, you realize how much of that was actually unhelpful in preparing you for marriage. You jump on this experience or that experience because you have, you have no expectations on you. No parents on the one hand, no spouse on the other, but you forget that you do have an expectation on you. You are under Jesus. And we must still voluntarily submit to Him and give an account to Him. Don't waste your singleness. And that happens on the opposite end, too. When we are divorced or widowed, those are often tragic and emotional seasons. But on the other side of that pain and loss is a freedom to serve Christ all the more. In prayer, in discipling younger men and younger women, in serving fellow Christians, in being free to spend time sharing the gospel with your neighbors and co-workers. For those who are single but hope to be married or expect to be married, we also get in this passage a good framework for choosing a spouse. Not all cultures have allowed the freedom to choose a spouse, but ours does, and so do it wisely. Women, choose a husband who has shown a demonstrated commitment to love others from a cheerful and gentle heart so that you can gladly and voluntarily submit to them. Men, Choose a wife who has shown a demonstrated commitment to humble but strong of heart submission in her appropriate relationships to her reading of Scripture, which is the word of Jesus, or perhaps to her parents. Not subservience, but a voluntarily and distinctly Christian submission so that you can gladly surrender your rights for her benefit and not grow embittered. So, if you have a heavenly calling, build gospel marriages. Now, we've spent a lot of time on that section of the passage because of the unique situation of our culture, and there's some words in there that are difficult for us to process. And also, it's probably the category that most distinctly applies to people at this church gateway. But we have two other groups of relationships to look at, and I'm going to spend a little less time here. The second is scions and sires for the sake of alliteration, otherwise known as children and fathers. Children will note have a different relationship to the household head than wives. While wives were to show a voluntary submission, children have mandatory obedience. Children are probably children who are not adults, or children who have not marked out their own household yet. And mostly that applies to what we would call minors, those 18 and under. But, but it probably applies to older children as well who are still under the authority of their parents' homes. That is, they have not yet ventured out to establish lives independent of their parents. The, the Ten Commandments says that all of us are to honor our father and mother but only children are said to need to obey them. 
So that's setting out to venture and establish a household of your own. Traditionally, in traditional cultures, and historically even in our own culture, that would happen with, with marriage. But, but not always. And certainly, certainly not always the, the, the case in our culture today. But let's, let's put it this way. This passage applies to you directly if you are living under the protective care of your parent or parents, no matter your age but it generally applies to younger people. And the Christian command demands obedience at this point for the children. Now, it's a general command. All the other caveats apply. Paul says enough elsewhere that he would not tell a child to sin in order to obey his parents. Because obedience to Jesus comes before obedience to parents. Nevertheless, just obedience, fair obedience, is demanded of children. And the command is directed at children, so we should also point out that it was incumbent upon the children to obey this command. Paul did not say, May parents, make your children obey. Well, I don't want to press this too much. Evidently, Paul imagined this letter being, being read aloud, as was typically the case back then, in the church of Colossae, and the children who were old enough to understand and respond to the gospel could take this command to heart and apply it to their lives. So we should not read into this any domineering or parental bullying. Neither should we expect very young children to perfectly obey their parents. After all, they are often learning what words and boundaries mean. I had a pastor try to tell me my my one or two year old son was being rebellious because he was playing with an electrical outlet after I told him not to. And, And that frankly was absurd especially if you knew my son. Uh, More likely, my son at the time didn't fully understand the scope of the command I had given him. He was too young to understand what obedience to me was or probably even what an electrical outlet was. He wasn't doing anything intrinsically immoral. It wasn't like he was stabbing the cat. He was playing with an electrical outlet. Parents, you cannot use this command as an opportunity to bully your children. This is a command for them, not a command for you. On the other hand, there is a command for fathers. And again, we see these relationships are centered around a male figure who heads the household. No mention of mothers is given in the second part of this this couplet. So it says specifically, fathers do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Fathers have a unique responsibility to nurture and protect the children in their care. Of course, mothers do too. But it's interesting to note how much emphasis Paul and the Bible put on the role of fathers in nurturing and protecting the children in their care against the idea of our culture that the children are somehow a womanly job or a mother's job. The fathers are specifically singled out. A failure to do this well could lead to the children being discouraged. The sense seems to be the risk of causing a child to become despondent, hopeless, beaten down, sullen. How does a father do this? By provoking them. Other translations say exasperating them or embittering them or aggravating them. And I think the sense is sort of that that heavy-handed and nitpicking display of power that leads a child to feel impotent and weak and a failure. In short, fathers have an important role to not tear down their children, but to build them up. Does this apply to mothers? Oh, of course it does, and certainly. But the unique responsibility of the father to represent his household means he is responsible for the successful nurturing and leading and training of his children. If this fails to happen, the buck stops with him. He will be held accountable before Jesus for his failures. And as a father myself, that is sobering. We don't have a lot of parents in our church at Gateway. We have many who would be parents, who hope to be parents. And, and many of you learned from fathers who tore you down. But you do not parent that way. You can choose a Christian way. You are called to choose a Christian way. If you are in Christ, and, and fathers in particular, 
You are responsible to see that this happens. For those of you without children, you have a role also. The, the church is your extended family. You're, you're called to treat younger members as brothers and sisters and older members as fathers and mothers. So you have a calling then in this extended family to help the parents in your midst successfully carry out their God-given mandate to love and nurture their children, which means parents, you have to let them help. And although American culture says you shouldn't do this, Christ's culture says that you have a responsibility to rebuke parents who are failing to love their children this way, and especially to rebuke fathers who fail to lead their homes in such a way. And if you're hearing this and you are a single parent, particularly a single mother, know this, you can't be a father to your kids. And that's okay. You just need to be a great mom for your kids. You can't be what you can't be. You cannot make yourself guilty for being what you cannot be. But men, you look out for single mothers. Be a father or be a big brother to those children. Show them what godly, tender, gentle, caring, nurturing masculinity looks like. Be models. And single moms, never be ashamed to ask for help. You are not superwoman, and you don't have to be. Rely on the family to which you've been called, the church, to surround you and lift you up. The last category here is the most awkward. The conversation about husbands and wives is the most difficult, but this one is the most awkward. And that's because the United States has a long and demonic history with slavery. It was demonic. It was evil, and it was wrong. And when we read about slavery in biblical times, that very poignant and jarring image of American slaveholders treating human beings like chattel, like farm animals, is so horrific that it colors our understanding. Now, I've spoken at length about slavery elsewhere. A couple years ago, I preached a series on the book of Philemon. And those sermons are on our website and in our sermon podcast if you want to go back to it. And I'm not going to retread all of that same ground here since it's, it's going to be a lengthy sermon as, as it is. And also because I've talked about it. That letter to Philemon, though, is important because it was a letter by Paul, by, by Paul to his friend Philemon who lived in Colossae. In fact, if you look at that letter and you look at this one, it becomes clear that Paul is sending both letters at the same time. And he's sending them by the hand of a man named Onesimus, who appears to be a runaway slave of the man named Philemon. And in that letter, Paul insinuates that Philemon should free his slave. And so that's part of the context of these verses. These two letters are coming in at the same time. One personal, but almost having the expectation that it's going to be heard and read more broadly, and the other generally to the entire church. What I want to remind you of some things we talked about in that series, but I'm not going to defend them here. I'm not going to back them up or prove them here. I'm just going to state it. You can look to the Philemon series. If you want more of a defense of it, you can do the research yourself. But the basic idea is that ancient slavery was very different than American slavery. And, and here are six ways, and I could give you more. One, ancient slavery was often something that someone entered into voluntarily. That wasn't how American slavery operated. But ancient slavery was often something done voluntarily, maybe as a way to pay off debt, um, but also because, the, you know what, there were positions in Roman society that were only available to slaves. They had a, just a different conception. There were positions, there were privileged positions, that they were desirable positions that you could only get if you were a slave. And so some people would choose slavery as a way of advancing in society. That, that, and that alone is so foreign to the American concept um, that it's, to me it's always mind-blowing to think about. Secondly, ancient slavery was generally, but not always, governed by a more sophisticated code of ethics that regarded the slave as a fellow human being and not as an animal. 
which isn't to say they were always treated well, but they were not generally looked at as cattle. Third, ancient slavery could be expensive for a slave owner, so it wasn't something a person engaged in lightly. Fourth, the Bible expressly forbids kidnapping people or taking possession of kidnapped people as slaves, which essentially condemns the entire American slave trade. The entire American slavery uh, system falls apart on that one command to say nothing else of so much more of the scriptures. Fifth, ancient slavery was rarely, if ever, based on what we would understand to be ethnicity. It was not a race-based system. And six, slaves were often paid a wage for their work and often held second jobs away from their masters in their spare time to earn more money, which is very different than what we think of. So this is a a radically different picture. And while first century slaves did not have unlimited freedom, they were not bound in the same way we understand most American slaves to have been bound. So as much as we joke about some of our bosses being like slave masters, the reality is, is that a first century slave has a lot more in common with a 21st century employee than he or she does with a 19th century American slave. And that's especially true, I imagine, for those who are engaged in contract work, where you are committed to an individual or an organization for a set time, and they are committed to you for a set time. So in the commands that follow, most slaves would not have had Christian masters. And most masters would not have had Christian slaves. Now, certainly, uh, well, let's put it this way. Christianity was still on the ascendancy. And so all of its adherents in Colossae were likely recent converts. And so you couldn't just expect a person you ran into randomly to also be a Christian. The slaves were becoming Christians. Masters were becoming Christians, left and right. So the letter to Philemon gives some principles for how a Christian slave and a Christian master might interact. But the fact that there's no expectation of mutual faith in this passage makes the commands more striking. And to summarize them, um, well, at least on the slave side of things, slaves are to be obedient to the head of the household. Unlike American slavery, Paul could write with the assumption that the slave's protection and thriving came at the hand of the head of the household. Another point, uh, this is written to Christian slaves. Paul is expecting Christians to hear this letter in the church. These these expectations make no sense for a non-Christian slave. Since we don't have slaves in our culture today, at least in 21st century America, for the most part, and those who are have been kidnapped against their will, and so that is an entirely immoral situation. Because of that fact, because I know of no one in our church who is a slave or holds slaves, I would encourage you to apply this passage in the closest approximation that we have today, which is the employee-employer relationship. Now, the difference is that relationship isn't part of our household like it was in the first century, but it's our best approximation. And briefly, the instructions to slaves are as follows. First, complete and not selective obedience. Slaves, or employees, if you will, were not to obey only the things they wanted to obey, the things they felt like doing the things that were most interesting about the job to them. They were to follow their masters or employers, if you will, instructions carefully. I think we can all uh, reasonably um, feel the pull of that. We've been in work situations where we want to focus on what we want to focus on and not necessarily what the company or our boss wants. Second, they, they were to work faithfully. Paul urges that they resist the temptation to only do work or to work harder when people were watching them, so as to gain their favor. Paul says they should work as for the Lord, and the Lord is always seen, always watching, always looking at the quality of our work. How do you carry out a job when you're not being watched? And that's maybe a more pressing question for those of us living through the age of coronavirus when many of us work from home. Do we give our best 
even when no one's paying attention, even when the Zoom meeting is over. Third, they were to work diligently, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Just like we would give our best, we hope for Jesus, we should give our best to our employers. And we know how hard that can be sometimes to give our best like we were giving our best to Jesus. But consider the witness to a dying world. If all the Christian slaves in Colossae got a reputation for being the most hardworking and most diligent slaves, and what if it was known that these slaves, that the reason for their hard work and dedication was that Christ had served them by dying for their sins? And so the least that they can do is to serve well in return. What would that have done to spread the good news of Jesus in that ancient city? In the same way, what if it were the witness that Christian employees made the best employees? And what if Christians were quick to explain to their employers that their hard work and their effort were solely because Christ had given all on the cross for them? And so they gave their all for others. How would the name of Jesus be magnified? But there's a promise and a warning here, too, that even if the slave master or employer treats you unfairly, the days on this planet are few and short, and the end is an eternal reward, an eternal payment from the hand of Jesus himself. And what's more, any wrong you suffer will be punished by the hand of King Jesus. Which makes an appropriate change to focus on the slave masters who have just received that veiled threat, that veiled warning. To see, the slave master or the employer, if you allow it, is not off the hook. They must treat their slaves with justice and fairness. I think if you talk to most employees, these are two of their highest values for an employer. They're willing to accept criticism for their mistakes, but they want to be recognized for their contributions. They want to be promoted and advanced on the same footing as any other employee. They don't want partiality in the office. They want just compensation for their work. An employer who does that, who treats his employees fairly, who treats them with consideration and pays them well for their work, is likely to have very happy and satisfied employees and consider the cultural expectation. What if the understanding was that the Christian employers were the best employers to work for? They were desirable because they treated their employees so well and treated them fairly. Wouldn't that extend the fame of Jesus and the reach of the gospel? So, for those who are employers in a position to have people working under you, what kind of employer are you? And for those who are employees, what kind of employees are you? Are you distinctively Christian employees and employers? Or are you roughly the same as the culture around you? Because the culture around us is awful. We have horrible bosses and horrible employees. So let's strive to be salt and light in a dark world. Well, again, those of us who've been called to a um, heavenly home are required now to cultivate gospel homes. That impacts the way our marriages work. It impacts the way our parenting works. It impacts the way we interact with anyone who comes in and under our protection and care. And that even extends to our relationship with our employers and our employees. We do this because it's the way Jesus has loved us and the way that Jesus has modeled sacrifice for us. And so we also do it in return, not just as thanksgiving, but to adoration, to magnify him and make him known.